Welcome to Show Cause, the official podcast of the University of Memphis School of Law. I'm Ryan Jones, the Director of Communications at the Law School, and I'll be your host for this podcast as we attempt to examine and explain some of the legal and cultural issues at play in the world today. A building within a building within a building. That's how today's guest, architect Bill Nixon, describes the historic structure at 1 North Front Street in downtown Memphis that the University of Memphis School of Law now calls home. Throughout its life, our building has housed a U.S. Customs House, served as a federal courthouse, and even a U.S. Post Office headquarters. And just as it's had many different functions, it's also had several different physical looks, features, and prominent additions made to it over the years. It's these different additions that Mr. Nixon is referring to when he says there is a building within a building within a building. The original facility, built in the 1880s, still basically sits in the middle of the current day structure, with two other additions encasing and surrounding that original building. But it's the massive redesign and construction project that Bill Nixon joins us today to talk about. He was the lead architect and project director for the incredible redesign of the University of Memphis School of Law facility when we moved from our old location on the main university campus to this incredible building in downtown Memphis. He joins us ahead of an upcoming event at the law school on Friday, November 4th in our historic courtroom, where he will give an in-depth look at the historic redesign of our home and walk the audience through what it took to pull off this massive undertaking with stories, anecdotes, and behind-the-scenes glimpses into what it took to pull off a project of this scale. In our podcast today, we just scratched the surface of his stories, and it hopefully gets anyone in our audience interested in historic preservation, renovation, and redesign the impetus to come learn more at the event itself later this fall. But before we get started, just a quick bit about Bill himself, followed by a quick overview of the history of our law school and the timeline leading up to our move to this award-winning facility. Bill Nixon's a retired architect and partner emeritus at Askew Nixon Ferguson Architects. He was born in Newcastle, attended the King's College School of Architecture in Newcastle itself, graduating in 1964, and then began his career at the architectural and engineering firm Building Design Partnership London and was responsible for projects in the south of England and Libya, North Africa. In 1970, that firm asked him to help open an office in Memphis focusing on federal attempts to reduce housing costs through factory-built modular construction. He stayed on after that project and formed a partnership with architect Lee Askew III. That partnership later became Askew Nixon Ferguson Architects Incorporated, and his work with that firm includes the IRS Service Center in Memphis, the FedEx Pacific Rim Hub in Anchorage, Alaska, the first stages of design for the FedEx Hub at the Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, and a number of military projects before ultimately retiring in 2012. Throughout his career, he remained involved in the community and with the University of Memphis itself, and as I noted earlier, he was the lead design architect and project director for the law school when it relocated downtown in 2010, and the design architect for the new community health facility for the University of Memphis. He's past president of the Memphis chapter of the American Institute of Architects and former chairman of the Memphis Landmarks Commission. Now, a little background about our building itself and its history. The original facility was built in the early 1880s and it officially opened in 1885. It housed several federal entities and served as the U.S. Customs House to clear goods coming into the city and up from the prosperous Mississippi River trade industry, while also functioning as the region's federal courthouse and as the downtown U.S. Post Office location. In addition to serving as a home to several federal entities, the building itself also underwent a number of different renovations and additions over the years. Originally, the building featured two enormous clock towers on its north and south sides, four total high ceiling courtrooms, and an architectural elements influenced by styles ranging from Italianate Revival to those modeled on the Louvre Museum in Paris. A large western addition was built in 1903 
and in 1929, another expansion added the north and south side additions, a brand new eastern facade, and a complete renovation of the eastern lobby, third floor courtroom, and two monumental grand staircases and several sets of elevators. It was also during this 1929 renovation that both clock towers were shortened, resulting in the building looking like what most are more familiar with today. Eventually, the Customs House and Federal Court were moved to other facilities, but the U.S. Postal Service remained in the building until 2005, when serious discussions between the U of M, former Tennessee Governor Phil Bredesen, the Tennessee Board of Regents, and the U.S. Postal Service about the possible transfer of the building began. After much back and forth and the additional involvement of U.S. Senator Bill Frist, as well as the backing of many regional political and business leaders, the deal was done, and the facility was transferred to the state and the university in the fall of 2006, and the $42 million renovation and construction project officially began. That's where Bill Nixon and his team come into the story. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and if you do, that you'll make time to attend the event itself with Bill on Friday, November 4th here at the Law School at 5 p.m., where he'll go into much more depth about the history and behind-the-scenes stories from the project, all with some great visuals to help tell the story. Enjoy. This is Show Cause. So today, uh, I'm excited to have our guest here with us. We've got Bill Nixon, who is the uh, the project. He was the project director and lead architect on the renovation and redesign of our beautiful building here. And uh, Mr. Nixon is going to be presenting at a really exciting event that we have coming up in November, where he will speak about the 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 redesign of our historic home and some of the interesting facts and behind the scenes stories that came about as uh, part of that project. So today I'm excited to have him here and speak with us uh, a little bit more about that and go into a little bit more depth. And I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with the fact that our buildings had several different identities and functions over its life, um, from a customs house to the federal courthouse to the post office. But, um, I don't think many people realize all that went into the renovation and the redesign and and how it's physically changed from what it used to be uh, when it was originally built to now. So um, I was hoping you might be able to start with uh, telling us about the building itself, how it evolved over the years, how it's maybe how it's different from today from when it was originally built. Well, yeah, the uh, I'm more than welcome and pleased to, to do this. It, the project as a designer, it, it, just to let everyone know, it, it was over a period from 2002 to, to 2010 when it was dedicated. So it's an eight-year project. Uh, and that's just from an architectural point of view. It was a, a big project, a long project. Mm-hmm. But the, the, building, the building itself, uh, uh, there are three buildings in one, inside one. So what you see today is, is the outside skin. The uh, first building, I, I call it the 1884 building when it was originally designed, um, and, and that is hidden inside the building. It is still there, the majority of it. They, they took down the uh, clock towers and mm-hmm. the pediment on the top of the courtroom in, in 1903 and then added an addition uh, to, the, to the rear of the building, uh, and that also is, is still here. And then in 1929, uh, the government 
Treasury Department decided that they would completely redo it, and they added the facade, which you see now, and the two, the north wing and the south wing, and uh, that's what we see. But all three buildings are there, and the two older buildings are hidden in, inside and concealed, and they're only, we specifically left little areas of, uh, to tease everybody, I guess, to uh, to see parts of the the old building, and uh, it was, but it was quite a challenge because uh -huh. there are three buildings and there are three structural systems that are, we had to deal with. They, they weren't all built in, out of one type of, of uh, structural system. So to an architect and an engineer, that's, that's really pretty interesting. But the buildings were always the one function. It was designed as the U.S. Custom House, uh -huh. the uh, federal, federal Courtroom or Courthouse, and the Post Office, and all three functions stayed in there, whether, whether it was the original building or the 1903 edition or the, the 1929 edition. And uh, it was only, of course, in, in recent years that the Custom House and the U.S. Federal Court moved out and mm -hmm. left the post office as the, the only occupant. I guess that's an overview of, of, of what happened uh, initially. Well, I think that's neat. I don't think that uh, I don't think a lot of people realize that kind of uh, building within a building historical context of it. I think as you walk around, you can kind of see that, but it's, it's, that's an interesting anecdote. Am I correct? In, right. Am I correct in stating that originally our large historic courtroom on the third floor uh, did the, I've been told the, the windows originally looked uh, out towards the river and now they, of course they face uh, front street and down Madison Avenue um was the is that true and and when that uh western edition was made i guess they filled in the windows that is correct the the uh they actually left um the windows that that edition the 1903 edition on the west of the courtroom there um it was a, a a light well. there was a an open shaft in the middle of that edition hmm. and so those windows on the west side looked into that open light well and it was it was closed off when we did uh the structural change uh, to that part of the building so i think i'm pretty sure that the windows were both looking at the old drawings the windows were both on the west side and on the east side interesting the difference the difference in the courtroom may be that that the judges' benches were on the either on the north side and or on the south side. In other mm -hmm. words, the, the courtroom was not elongated uh, as it is now in, in one direction; it was in the other direction. And, and we, we gathered that because some of the original robing rooms, the originally, uh, were were adjacent to the, where the benches would have been. Anyway, yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes uh, sense. It's part of the design. The major concept in, in the design, uh, in order to be able to get these large spaces, which are the large auditorium on the ground floor mm -hmm. and the two large classrooms, teaching classrooms on the second and third floor and the law library reading room on the top floor. Yes. Uh, the concept was that we would absolutely remove the entire 1903 edition, but leave the, the existing walls 
uh, and they had to be braced during construction. So that was from the sky all the way through to the basement was removed by the 1903 edition. And the historical, the Tennessee Historical Commission and the local historical people uh, were favorable to allow us to do that because they felt like the 1903 edition was the least historically attractive of the three three editions that, that, that we have. That, uh, so that was removed. Yeah. No, you go and, ahead. And then we, yeah, that was removed. Uh, uh, the floors, the walls, the, the windows, everything, and, and it was braced. And a 12-inch thick, uh, for want of a better name, reinforced concrete. It was a material called shotcrete, which is, mm-hmm. which is actually concrete which is blown onto a surface. So there was a reinforcement cage that was built and then shotcrete was blown into that to form a 12-inch thick reinforced concrete wall from the basement all the way up to the sky, through wow. the, to, the, to the rooftop. And then the individual floors were attached there too. So that area there, and the reason for doing that was that it was felt like we should make as good an attempt as we could to seismically protect not only the occupants, but the building itself. So that concrete, you could call it a concrete bunker, if you wish, but that concrete bunker braces a lot of the seismic protection that is in the rest of the building. Well, yeah, for years, people have said, you know, if this is the building they want to be in whenever the so-called big big earthquake happens along this fault line. Um, that, is, that is correct. I would certainly recommend it. I, I wouldn't <laughs> necessarily run to it because I think that, that, uh, that uh, some of the stonework on the outside and parapets, if, if there is a tremor, may loosen and come off. But if you're in the building, uh, yeah, absolutely. It, it's likely to be as safe as a building downtown and you should make your way towards that central location mm-hmm. in one of those classroom areas. Definitely. Uh, talking about that, the structural reinforcements you did, I was going to bring this up a little later on, but I think it makes sense now. Um, the fourth floor reading room that we have on the the top of the building, you know, it's really kind of the crown jewel of, uh, of, of the, the building as it is now. And I think it's really a unique space because it's, I believe it's, you know, it's new, more or less new construction on top of the, the building and existing attic space. But um, can you talk a little bit about what, what people might not know about that space, what you had to do to um, create that new room at the top of the building like that, what went into that and, and what makes it so unique to have on a historical building like this? Well, yeah, um, that's, Absolutely true. It is unique, and we felt like uh, it was the one location that that we could uh, design. What I continue to call it was a little, and you've already mentioned it, a jewel on the top uh, of the crown, as it mm-hmm. were. And it's it, uh, it, it's in that protected area, the seismic area. So all of the parapets around there are seismically protected as well. We built the glass jewel box right there and of course we use special glass which is frittered glass and also the mecha shades which are mechanically Mm -hmm. or electronically operable 
to be able to shade areas at certain times of the day, because we we know, of course, that it faces the Mississippi and it faces west, and the west sun in the evening is is uh, is, is a major factor in the design of that thing. The uh, the space itself uh, was designed to follow, uh, and most people don't notice this, follow the same shape as the original building. In other words, it's a vertical wall and then maybe a 45 degree angle all the way around uh, with glass and up to the roof. And, and that was the shape of the original uh, post office spaces that were up there in the attic. And you can, of course, see, see those spaces in the north wing attic and the south wing attic where some of the student review uh, functions exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, that same same shape we did, and we did it in glass to make it a contemporary-looking space, and it makes it rather rather unique. We didn't want to, to uh, make it historically uh, part of the rest of the building. Uh, we felt like it, it, it is a different, it's a contemporary space, and we didn't want anyone to be fooled into it, into thinking it was part of the original historic columns and beams. Of, of what we have elsewhere in, in the building. Yeah. Well, I think it's a beautiful space and, you know, it's, it's got amazing sight lines all the way across the river. Um, and I, I don't think that anybody ever gets tired of going up there and, and utilizing it. Right. Did you right. have and, a, and one of the, one of the important things that, that I like to stress in this thing right at the beginning of when we were working with the, the dean Don Polden, and we mm-hmm. were talking to some of the students at, at, on the Central Avenue, the old uh, law school. Uh, a, a thing stuck in my brain all the way through the project, and that was that uh, a student who was a senior or getting ready to graduate, I think, made the comment that uh, that you know the law students generally, uh, this is a generalization but work extremely hard to, in order to get into law school. And they've come from uh, high school and got their grades and everything, and they get accepted. And, and when they come into a law school, uh, like we had on Central Avenue, which was really very badly designed, and it was aging, and of course had water problems. Yes, had, yes. Library was on four or five different floors in, in different parts of the building. He just felt like it it was no better a facility than he had had in high school, and that stuck in my brain the whole time during the design. And that was every design decision, whether it was on the ground floor or the where the faculty were going or where the students, where the law library was going. We gave the students the best spaces so that the uh, study areas in the law library have views of South Memphis, have views of the uh, Mississippi River, and uh, even the the student lounge on the ground floor at the north end got got one of the best spaces. uh, And and that was the philosophy throughout the entire design. And we, we had some discussions and heavy discussions with the uh, faculty and also with the, the uh, dean about this, but we all agreed at, at the end that, that that was the philosophy that we should follow. And we did. I think it's clear. It's student. clear that it's a student-focused layout. Um, when you think of all school, 
I think a reality for a lot of the students is, you know, they spend so much of their life in this building for the three years that they're here. It's, you know, whether it's for classes, whether it's for studying, whether it's for, uh, you know, ac activities or courtroom practice. And, you know, usually you're inside of a building for so long and you you just don't get to see any of the, the see any of experience any outside activity and they come here and so many beautiful spaces for them have beautiful views of the river or views of the, uh you know the park across to the park or down madison avenue and so many of the there's so much natural light so many windows so many open spaces for them um that it's clear that it was designed with the student experience in mind i think um so, and I think that's that correct. that carries through throughout the entire building. You, um, yeah. I'm curious about uh, this. Might be something a little different than your you would touch on in your presentation. Um, what did you have any any history working on historical preservation pro projects? Um, did you come into this uh, and learn a lot about you referenced earlier working with you know uh, local and state preservation societies and historical preservation organizations? Um, was this really your first large scale experience with something like that? Or uh, did you come on board as someone that had uh, undertaken preservation projects like this before? I, I had I had not specifically undertaken preservation projects. Most of the projects that I had done before were, were big projects like this, complex mm -hmm. projects, but they were, they were more corporate or industrial or, or, or commercial type projects, either for, for FedEx, um, you know, doing major projects in, in uh, Alaska or in uh, other parts of the Memphis hub, for instance, uh, but also complex buildings that were new buildings, mainly uh, the IRS facility uh, out on Holmes and Getwell Road, which was, you know, $121 million project. Uh, and that was done 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, so um, I did, I was the chairman of the Memphis Landmarks Commission for mm -hmm. five, or, five or six years. So I did get to hear and participate in making decisions for, for the city of Memphis uh, for two terms. And that was uh, enjoyable. That was a good experience to get into knowing how to, uh, interpret state and city requirements in historic areas. So I was very aware of it. Plus, I guess the part of the thing, you know, I, I was born in the north of England and, uh, you know, everything that was around us then was relatively old. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I mean, old going back to Roman, uh, Newcastle was Novo Castria, which is Latin for Newcastle, and it was at the eastern end of Hadrian's Wall, the famous Roman mm -hmm. wall that goes right across the north of England to keep the Picts and the Scots out of England. And that was the, the limit of the Roman Empire at the time of Hadrian. Uh, so, and everything around it, you know, the, the, the cathedrals that were there, I, I, you know, we, I got to... to feel them and see them uh, and it's just part of our daily life that the cathedral in durham which is where my degree came from the university of durham 
uh, it was started in 1096. So it's, it was a, <laughs> right. it's an old historical building. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> understatement. And then, uh, understatement. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, of course, it, and it sits with it in a precinct along with the uh, priory that, that's there and a castle. So there's three buildings, the cathedral, the castle and the priory on top of a, a fortified hill. And beautiful. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, that's, I think, where most of my experience came mm-hmm. from, uh, living it and traveling and seeing it. And, Just informs your uh, your outlook. Enjoying it, yeah. Yep. Right. When you first came on board here, you know, what was... What was the most daunting aspects of the project when you when you walked into it? You know, was it the condition of the building uh, uh, before you started things? Was it the the bureaucracy involved and all the entities? You know, what was what struck you as as the most daunting thing to overcome when you when you came on board? Yeah, I think that uh, I, I was not involved directly in it, but I the daunting part was listening and talking. And hearing from the dean uh, as to what was happening, and and uh, the, the Tennessee Board of Regents, mm-hmm. what was happening in the negotiation for the building, and uh, whether or not the U.S. Post Office would would uh, even consider moving out. And I think that that uh, you know when when we eventually heard with the, with the help of some really key local business people. Uh, and they dealt directly with, I think, with Washington uh, mm-hmm. Postal Service, uh, getting approval for the post office to move out and be re- relocated. The, that, that was the most daunting thing, whether or not that would ever happen, uh, and it, you know, and whether or not uh, the, the project would finally go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the post office, I'm guessing, used twenty five percent of the building that's all um mm-hmm. and uh, it's mainly mainly at the north end where they had uh just a regular post office and sorting area and uh, also on the second floor they uh, they, they had um, the, the special investigation branch which are the i guess the detective side of of the post office and uh uh, they were very, very nice offices for a small, a relatively small department of the the postal service. I never knew that that was what was on the second floor of their spaces. Um, uh, there's, there's always been stories, um, kind of told about the historic courtroom and about uh, how you kind of uncovered some of the beauty that was in that room versus what it was in the right. post office incarnation. Right. Actually, can you, can you touch on that because? It'd be neat to be, you know, kind of get that on the record about what happened there, because we, I've heard, you know, that there's uh, when you originally entered, you know, pink drywall, drop ceilings, uh, and that that the team didn't even know that the beautiful ceiling and light fixtures was there originally, or the post office didn't know. Yeah, a lot of people didn't know, and and uh, yeah, that that room was a shock. Everybody had seen the photograph, of course, of that room. That mm-hmm. It was steel, steel case, typical government steel case uh, cubicles in there with a gray carpet. And uh, it had what I termed and it became known as Pepto-Bismol pink. <laughs> it was the wall. 
and uh, the, the, a dropped ceiling, just a typical suspended acoustic ceiling uh, at probably about eight foot height. So it was ter- terrible. And then what was really more most concerning was that when they when you looked at the junction between the acoustic ceiling and the wall, it looked like that someone had actually chopped off the pilasters, the, the columns that were on mm-hmm. the wall, mm-hmm. and it was a shock to think that someone would do that. But when when we investigated it further, it, 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 they weren't. It was, uh, there was someone had painted a black line right there, <laughs> and everything uh, uh, they do that little one or two inches of black paint made it look like that. But when we eventually got the maintenance people to provide us with a stepladder, we uh, got in the middle of that space and we pushed up a couple of ceiling tiles and we we didn't even get a chance to to get our head up there, but we reached with our hands and our camera and flash and just took lots of pictures in lots of directions. And we saw, and I still have some of those pictures, uh, we saw the skylight, which is there, and mm-hmm. we saw the plaster work and, the, and also the, the rest of the columns at, at the perimeter. But there were masses of, of holes and wires and areas that uh, over the years they had reattached different ceilings. So there was damage up there, but the majority of the, uh, the ceiling and the decorative work was still in place. Were those massive was, light fixtures still hanging up there? Uh, no, uh, they weren't. But they had been put, put in storage. Oh, uh, so those are original uh, ones that are not in there. All of them. They're not the original ones. Gotcha. So some of them are. Some of them are original, and the same in in the entrance hall. Some mm-hmm. of the hanging light fixtures in the main entrance hall are original. And then we had to have someone fabricate one or two of those. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. The, yeah. um, trying to think if there's anything else in the courtroom though the other you know we had we had copies of the 1884 drawings um, of the courtroom and so we knew basically what it had been like mm-hmm. and uh the, the, the one thing that we'd, we'd hoped for would have been that under the, the gray uh carpeting they might have retained the original floor which would have been beautiful, but it, it unfortunately didn't happen. They 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 put down plywood panels and mm. screwed it and nailed it through. And the original floor was a combination of wood and and cork tiles, uh, and for acoustic reasons, I guess, in the courtroom right. they had used the cork, and it was so dried out and deteriorated that the decision was made that we were not going to um, restore that, and uh, so that's. The reason why we have a a, a new floor in, in the is uh, speaking of that floor is is it is it true that um on that same floor you have on the the south end uh wing you've got what we call the the small moot courtroom and then on the the northern the northern wing uh, you've got what we is used as the faculty lounge um, that small moot courtroom space I've been told that that's that that's the only uh, room in the building that has the original hardwood floors. Is that is that correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And and both of those spaces have, um, uh, we could say, restored the, the ce- ceiling areas. I mean, that was 
part of the original. Oh, that I mean, those decoration. are beautiful. They're like the hand hand painted stenciling right. on those right. raft, yeah, those beams. Yeah, we did have to take out uh, very carefully some of those in order to do again go back to the seismic protection of the building. And what I didn't say earlier on is that we we provided the same reinforced concrete. Uh, shot creek, uh, seismic walls on the corners of the building. Mm-hmm. And they were, I'm, I'm guessing they were maybe 10 or 12 feet in length, uh, forming an L shape. And in order to do that, they had to remove some of the, uh, those beams, the painted beams, and they really? did a wonderful job of restoring them back into in the same position. Oh yeah. They're beautiful. Again, but, those things are, are hidden. Nobody is even aware of the, the, the seismic shear walls. Yeah. Right. I mean, the, the, the seismic retrofitting um, for the building seems to me to be just such a massive undertaking that, like you said, it's hidden. People don't realize all of that work that went into that right. went into this. Yeah. And some of the areas we, we had to take out uh, part of the uh, concrete subfloor. And, and we inserted steel plates to, that connected from the central of, of some of the perimeter seismic shear walls into the, the north and south wing. Because if you can imagine what, what happens if, in the case of a seismic tremor, and if there's any uh, movement, it's like shaking jelly, as it were, that, mm-hmm. that, uh, and then the, the, the center shot creep seismic a bunker that's in the middle uh, it provides the rigid part, and we attached steel plates in the floor to to stabilize the north and the south wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know whether I'm explaining that carefully, but we'll talk about it in in the in the lecture. And right, that might they, be. They make more sense. I know a lot of this. A lot of those things probably are are illustrated really well with some of the visuals that you'll bring that you may bring along too. So. That's another reason for right. anybody listening to also make sure they attend that event because I think um, a lot of the a lot of the visuals will be really neat to see and illustrate things pretty well. There are right. um, there are a lot of little things in this building that over the years, uh, you know, I've gone on tours with people or you know, for prospective students or or donors or alumni, and there's always little tidbits that come up that um, fascinate me. Um, you know, whether it be uh, the 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 ways that you incorporated the the post office uh, history into the design of the building, um, or I've always thought it was really neat. Where if you're in the main lobby, all of the places where there are a few places now where there's still the little brass windows where people would walk up and purchase stamps or mail their packages. Um, but even where those are no longer in place, you can look down at the floor. And see the indentations in the in the marble or granite floors where people had stood in line for you know a hundred years as they came up. Um, That's right. That's what right. Are, do you have any other little little surprising or exciting little tidbits that always kind of caught your attention or that people might not know about that that you could elaborate on? You know. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, many of the things that that we wanted to try and incorporate. Um, the U.S. Postal Service weren't exactly willing for us to do. Uh, and for example, in the north um, 
wing where the student uh, bookstore is. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. That that was a mailbox um, room, quite a large room, and also where the the glass doors and wall into the where you look through into this student lounge. Yes. That that was covered entirely with the, the U.S. Postal Service lockboxes, and we wanted to them to leave it and they said oh the federal government wouldn't allow that to happen they, they would <laughs> so they were all removed Interesting. and i'm sure a sword in some industrial warehouse in washington dc <laughs> but, uh, but, but it was a little annoying but but well, uh, i guess the they couldn't get the, the they couldn't get the safes out the, at least the safes are still in there in the library portion well, there were, uh, the other thing, there were eight uh, walk-in uh, safes. Really? I didn't know that. And originally, and some on the upper floors, and uh, we managed to incorporate the two. One is a, a visiting lawyer or a visiting student mm-hmm. office mm-hmm. area there, mm-hmm. and the other one's behind the law library reception desk. Right. We, we kept kept the logo on there and everything else, and... Uh, the other safes, we had an incredibly hard job. The Memphis Historical uh, Society wanted to, to have those vaulted doors. And they just, I don't know whether they gave up or, or what happened, but um, getting getting them out of the building from upper floors was a huge, huge task. And they're extremely heavy. Well, like you yeah. said, they're probably so, sitting in a warehouse in D.C. somewhere, too. They may be, but uh, the other thought of it was when we were doing all of our initial research, this is in connection with the federal the safes, the government safes, we, we were hoping you know, that we would find a few, few thousand dollar bills or <laughs> find some money, you know, but not, not blocks of gold. No such, no such luck. Um, the only thing we found in one of them on the other, one of the upper floors was uh, it was being used for emergency supplies so that if there was an earthquake or a tornado or something, you know, in the building, had to, people had to be restricted to staying in there. Uh, there were some really stale uh, crackers that were in boxes of crackers in there. <laughs> well, that's, just, that's probably from before the post office, you know, I was the sole it, occupant in the building, I assume. It was. We, we have no idea who put them there, but they were locked <laughs> in. Locked like a, a World War II bunker. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the other the other thing we were talking about earlier was the little uh, dual space on the top floor. That shape of, right. uh, it is the, 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 you know that's the shape shape of all of those uh, attic spaces, and uh, that middle area was used as a. a Postal workers' uh, weekend rooms. They had uh, a number of bathrooms up there and a number of places where they would have beds. So really? postal workers who were working over weekend could could go up there, and that's where they would sleep. And then they would get up and, and do their their route the next next day. So that's that's a that's an interesting tidbit I've never heard. Yeah. Well. Uh, interesting finds that we've had, of course, are the peepholes. And I don't know whether everybody's explained those things, but they they were both in the north wing and in the south wing. Um, 
and they're visible, of course, in the student lounge. Yes. You can see that uh, corridor, which is still accessible, uh, by the way, um, but it has peepholes in the bottom and also one-way mirrors on the, the sides. Right, and it's like an enclosed catwalk. Right, and the postal inspectors would use that space. They wouldn't. No one would know if anybody was, was in there <laughs> or not because there was a separate keyed access to that. And, of course, they were looking for anyone that was doing anything wrong um, uh, on, on the floor with working with the U.S. mail, whether mm -hmm. it was a drugs or whether it was money or, or whatever. And that, that of course, changed, uh, I'm guessing, in the 60s or 70s when, when they incorporated cameras mm -hmm. uh, to, to do secu security. Where were but they on the people, south end of the building? They were right over um, the the the, the uh, vault that's there. That really visiting, and and, uh, and they zigzagged. They 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 were removed on the south end, but at that yes, center yes. part, still still has a a, a, a corridor up there. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, the other area of peoples, which I don't know whether we even discussed this. It's sort of pretty disgusting in a way, but they ha had um, the one-way mirrors mm -hmm. in the men and men and women's bathrooms in the in the basement area. So I've that if any never, of the yeah, I've never heard that one. Right, and uh, we have photo. I don't believe any of those are incorporated anyway. But <laughs> I have, we have we have photographs. Yeah. Of, of yeah, so, they were pretty of, serious about it. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Speaking of that uh, basement space, um, that's definitely a, a spot that you know the general public never really gets to. But there's that there's a massive boiler system down there, um, and I mean, I've always heard that there was talk of removing it and utilizing that space for something else, but that it just proved impossible to, to remove from the building. And that's why it's still there. Um, it's it, any, any truth to that or any stories behind that? It's, it's sort of 50, 50, 50% truth. I guess. Okay. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they originally because the mechanical engineers needed spaces for new equipment, uh, they were suggesting that those boilers should be removed. Uh, of course, it would be a huge task doing it, but it, it would have to be cut up and removed. However, um, the uh, mechanical engineer, the property engineer for the University of Memphis, um, who was very active, by the way, in, uh, in the project all the way through, mm -hmm. uh, he insisted that those boilers stay as part of the history of the building. So it, it, it shocked everybody that, that we would have thought that he would have wanted it taken out and all new equipment put in. Of course, that's what they got. They, get, they, they did get all new equipment. Right. And that boiler on the roof. down there is not, you know, that's right. And, and, and it's um, not functional, but uh, it is a magnificent piece of the history. And of course, there are various other things Related to that, that at some time, you know, they changed from coal burning furnaces to uh, to oil uh, and, and and gas. Uh, so 
there are areas there where I think there are coal chutes that where they would deliver um, the coal on the south end and into the basement and into a coal burning uh, boiler at one time. So, yeah, huh. that kind of in, 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 that reminds me of the you know with there's there has to have been a a massive like chimney flue network throughout the building too, right? Because there's there's uh, no longer functional, but fireplaces all throughout the second and third floors. Um, so did, you know, did those tie in as well? Did you utilize those, the, the, those chimney runs for anything or just close them off? You know, did, what, what, what was the state of that when you right. came in? Right. It, it, when we, when you look at the old engraving of the original building or an old photograph of the 1884 building, um, you would see uh, two pretty pretty certain it was two main major fairly large chimneys, mm-hmm. and uh, they are still there. And what we, because of the intense technology that we had to put into the building, we had to think about a way of vertically routing huge amounts of cabling and. Uh, for the for the computer systems and mm-hmm. electrical systems, and so those two chimneys still exist. We put access doors to them and removed and put actually poured floors in them at each level, and with with chases going through the floor. So all of our IT wiring and electrical work, some electrical work, but mainly the IT wiring, uses that those two main chimneys, uh, and I, I, I'm not sure if, if you know where I'm talking about, I but the, yes. the two doors, okay, the uh, two doors there are used for that. And, and uh, really, That's... again, it just made it a way that everything that we put into the building is concealed. It's not surface mounted. There may be mm-hmm. a few places in the basement, basement or in mechanical rooms where we see things like that, but, but everything is hidden and concealed and well, including yeah. go ahead i think including including the major thing which the building is a hundred percent sprinkled which it was not before so the fire protection was required um for that building and normally you would see some pipe work for the fire protection and everything else but um we had a really close relationship with the fire marshal and he would he and their field inspectors would come down and we'd discuss this and discuss that and and i mean he was extremely cooperative and sensitive to keeping the fabric of the building intact and and, uh there's a number of stories that we can tell about that you know related to the ceremonial stairs that are there in the elevator Mm -hmm. um and uh, and the, the doors related to that. He allowed us to do and leave those staircases where normally that would not, under modern codes, that would not be uh, allowed. Really? Uh, but he, he insisted. Also, the stairs, I, I at one time knew how many treads and risers were incorporated in that, but they're, they're normally, you're not allowed to have uh, staircases that go beyond a certain maybe 15 or 16 mm-hmm. risers without having a, a landing. And, 
those things there on the ground ground floor, uh, thirty or forty. Oh yeah, rises. That, right, magnificent. Well, no, yeah. yeah. Now that, that's interesting that you say that. I've never thought about the sprinkler system. You know, retrofitting the building for it, and really the only place I've ever seen any sprinkler system infrastructure is maybe in the basement but if you use kind of the access stairwells on the north and south sides of the building you can see some of the runs through there but i've never thought about that as being yeah. such a massive undertaking to get that incorporated in here and so that's that's a really interesting tidbit right and he allowed us to to use some sidewall uh-huh. um, sprinklers which throw a certain distance rather uh-huh. than have to you know, go, go to the middle of the ceiling and break it out. Right. Yeah, I mean, he was that's exceptional. Cool. I think that the uh, the chimney thing with the IT wiring that's a kind of that's a neat a neat example of uh, adaptive reuse that I don't know that a lot of people realize that that had happened here. Yeah, well, you've hit a nerve point right there because <laughs> of uh, we we uh, as the architect tried diligently to persuade the state uh, Tennessee Board of Regents to go for LEED certification, mm-hmm. L-E-E-D, mm-hmm. on, on the, the building, which when you think about it, it's a wonderful adaptive reuse of an existing building, which yes, yes. Is, is one of the top, top priorities. But it also you know, it's near public transportation. You can walk to it in some cases and you can ride to it. Uh, we were uh, uh, removing certain materials and, and making it as green as we could. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they had at that time, they uh, felt like it it would cost more money to make it green. And we, no matter how we argued, <laughs> we couldn't persuade them. Well, I think it. you were ahead of your time in it because now most it seems like that is a a, a trend, you it's know. A, it is a requirement now, that's right. But it, mm-hmm. we, we consider it, it is a good green adaptive reuse building. It's a, one, a wonderful building. Totally. Well, I think it's, it's fascinating. I think that uh, I could keep talking with you about it for quite some time because it's there are so many little little things in the building that um, maybe the general public doesn't get to see on a regular basis or they don't know the stories behind. And I really think our, even our current students don't really fully always appreciate all of the, the ins and outs of it. It's uh, maybe as our alumni do, as you touched upon when we started this conversation, um, the previous iteration of the law school on main campus was just, you know, in dire straits. Um, and I think that so many of, other people that went to law school there when they come back here are just, I think it's a, an interesting mixture of um, pride for what the, the, you know, what the law school is now. And then also jealousy that they didn't get to have this as their law school when they were, when they went to school. Um, so I think that, I think that there'll be, there's a lot of interest in hearing about the, the work and the preservation and the, the unique, unique uh, elements of the building. So and especially with, and I think that uh, you know, I'm I'm just one individual. I happen to be the design architect, the lead person mm-hmm. on the on the project. And of course, that's fine. But there was a a, a large team, and I, I think for the presentation when I make it, I'll 
try and give you a number of how many firms in, in, in you know, like acoustical and technical Mm-hmm. fire protection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How many firms and, and individuals were involved in making it a really successful project? And uh, Yeah, that'll be interesting. And, uh, I, uh, I, my pride in the, in the thing is when, when I heard, when, once we had the dedication and the uh, person from the Tennessee Board of Regents who was the, the director of this project, he indicated that he thought it was the best run project that Tennessee Board of Regents had ever done. So, I mean, it, when you think that, that, that uh, of all the projects that they had done, and the majority of them are, are new projects mm-hmm. ground up, which is a, a lot easier than dealing with existing. Mm-hmm. Uh, very proud of that achievement. Well, I think you should be. The number of entities involved that were needed to pull this off is, is staggering. So I think, yeah, you touching upon all of that in your presentation will be, will be interesting as well. Um, well, again, I want to remind uh, anyone listening to this, that on Friday, November 4th um, at five o'clock here at the law school, um, Mr. Nixon will be here to give a presentation about uh, everything that we've talked about and more here about the history, intensive redesign of the building and the story of its transformation. So um, just visit our website, um, look at our social media. There'll be information about uh, where and when, when to RSVP, et cetera. Um, but if anybody has found this conversation even remotely interesting, then I think that presentation will be something they'll definitely want to put on their calendars and attend. Um, but Anything else that you want to note before we close, Bill? I'm sure there are a lot of things I'll, I'll think about uh, when we hang up on the telephone, but uh, <laughs> on the interview. But uh, no, I think that's that's great. I think we've covered uh, well, great. the majority. I, I do know that, that, that of course, that the, the, the west side of the building, as, as that progresses and Memphis progresses, I hope that that will get more use. Uh, the walkway that's there and the bridge uh, and of course the new bronze uh, and, mm-hmm. and four ten statues that are there that uh, recognize famous uh, Tennessee women oh, yes. and others I think yeah, um, the, so, uh, just uh, Tennesseans and Shelby Countyans that were involved in the suffrage movement that's right actually I think that's an interesting that's an interesting um, interesting bit to touch on because I think that um there's a there's been a, a neat evolution of that western western facing promenade area and um i think like you said it's getting more attention and i think that that it's going to continue to do so uh i think that you know as i'm sure you've noticed that the old Cossett library next door um at least the front of it the the mid-century portion in the front has been completely renovated and i think it should be opening and the within the next, you know, three to four or five months. Um, and then the, uh, the park to our, to our North, um, has undergone ex- extensive work and reactivation. And then the, um, you know, the Brooks museum is moving downtown just a little bit further wow. South of us. And I think the combination of all of those things, uh, are really going to draw a lot more attention to that western edge of the city on which the you know the law school has that promenade facing area we've already seen 
a lot more foot traffic back there since that um, suffragist monument has been erected. And I think it, yeah. it's really invited a lot more people back there to discover those views and just the green space. Um, as part of all of that, the, the city and installed some Wi-Fi infrastructure or the parks department installed some Wi-Fi infrastructure back there. So people can actually go back there and, and when the weather's nice, you know, uh, use it as an outdoor workspace or just uh, a place to kind of sit and enjoy the views. But as the Casa, the, the parks and the Brooks museum all kind of come to fruition down there. I think it's going to be a really cohesive uh, Western Western addition to the, to the edge of the city there. I think. Yeah. It, uh, have you heard uh, anything at all about the, the, the not the mid-century modern part of the Cosset, but the the warehouse part, the red stone, Rogers red concrete, actually? But, uh, yeah. I'll, the, I'll, all that I've heard, there. all I've heard about it is that you know the the front mid-century portion is the first phase, and then the that that red sandstone portion in the back is a much more intensive renovation. But they're but no plans to demolish it or do anything like that. But I think they're just looking at it as one step at a, one step at a time. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm I just would have, I would have hoped that, that, that they would demolish the, the rear warehouse. Cause it's a, no, I, I believe it's got no historic value. The, the, the building that had historic value it was where the mid century sits. Yes, exactly. exactly. You're totally right. And, uh, and uh, it, that would open up the back of the library, whatever plans that they're doing somehow as, as a plaza or a terrace. And I think it would connect uh-huh. really beautifully with the, with the new Brooks, uh, a new cultural center. Or well, I don't, I, you know, I don't know what will happen. I did hear we've heard, uh, you know, like a, a pedestrian bridge going over um Monroe from the the casa Monroe. to where the, to where the New Brooks Museum would be. I think that you know, as as all of that comes together, um, that space I think is really going to become a really interesting corner. And I think that the ideas for it will really I think will start to catch more attention once the the casa op- reopens and the Brooks moves down there. That corner is going to become a really interesting little corner of ideas. The uh, but you know the law the law yeah. school is really ahead of its time. I mean I think. Your the project that that you led to redesign it and get it to where it is was really one of the catalysts to you know a lot of downtown's redevelopment and you know it brought yeah what you know several hundred students and faculty and staff and legal community down here to front to front street and and to live to work to you know to play and everything and it, I think that uh you know what. 12, 12 years ago. Um, and I think everything else is kind of catching up. You know, the, the river, the yeah. riverfront was sort of viewed as the, uh, uh, it's more of the front porch to the city now. And I think people are realizing it. And for years, they just thought of it as, uh, the backyard and they faced away from it. And now I think the law school was coming down here, kind of reopened people's eyes to the, you know, the western edge of the city is something that is really impressive and i think the rest of the, the rest of the development is now catching up to that i agree i agree absolutely well great well this has okay. been really cool thank you for talking to me um and uh 
I hope everybody can make it out to your event on Friday, November 4th and uh, takes a listen to this and enjoys it. So thanks for taking the time, Bill. Very good. Thank you.